Greetings and Merry Christmas to you. If this finds you at that time of year, we'll be talking today about the birth of Jesus Christ. Today we'll be in two primary passages. We'll be briefly in Matthew chapter 1, and then we'll be spending some time in Isaiah chapter 7. And some of you are aware of the connection between the two, and today we're really going to explore that a great deal. But I want to begin by talking about the title of this sermon. It's called, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And yes, it is uh, inspired by the song of the same name, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It has a Uh, It's a traditional Christmas hymn. It has a beautiful melody. It brings to many people, like many of the Christmas songs, uh, feelings of nostalgia, memories of Christmas and things like that. Many people know at least the first verse uh, by heart, but it is indeed a beautiful hymn with a great message because the hymn speaks not only of uh, a plea for the coming of the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ, God with us, but it's also uh, a celebration of his return. So it's not only celebrating the first advent of Christ when he came and was born as a child, when he came and did his earthly ministry here, but it's also a celebration of his return and the final judgment of Christ. The words of the hymn itself were originally written in Latin. Not sure who wrote it, but we can trace it back as far as the early 1700s. And they were translated into English by a man named John Mason Neal. He published those in 1851, a collection of hymns. The melody has been traced back, the melody at least we use these days, has been traced back as far as the 15th century. So indeed it has deep Christian roots. And this one's a little different than many of the other traditional songs because Absent from the song is the view of the nativity, is the speaking about the baby and and the mother and Joseph and the wise men. You know, they're not mentioned specifically, but it focuses upon the concept of Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. And it speaks of the significance of the role of Christ as Emmanuel, God with us. And it's an earnest plea. Just from the title, you can tell that this is the plea of it because the title, as you see, says, oh, (laughs) starts with oh. Well, what does the word oh mean? Well, the word oh is what you say when you don't have any word that can really express what you're thinking. It's uh, similar to woe. In fact, it has the same roots as that. When you don't know what else to say, it's more of just a sound, a way to express emotion without an actual vocabulary. And so it says it twice. And oh, come, oh, come, like we are begging, like we are pleading, Emmanuel, God with us. And so it's a plea for God to be with us. It's a plea for God to send God with us, which is Jesus Christ. And so we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, which is where this title is attributed to Jesus Christ. And we're going to explore the scriptures and going to see what it really means for us to sing this great hymn. Here we have Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for these scriptures. And this day, Lord, we meditate upon Emmanuel, God with us. And indeed, we pray with you and we plead with you today. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Give us understanding of these things by your great spirit, the same spirit that conceived your son in the womb of the blessed Mary. Pray, Lord, that you give us understanding of these things and you lead us closer to you, that indeed we can say, our God is Emmanuel. In his name we pray, amen. Well, the uh, two major prophecies that are attached to the celebration of Christmas come close together in the book of Isaiah. The first one we just looked at here, the first one was this in uh uh, in Matthew one twenty three, it's Isaiah seven fourteen, and where it's referenced as Emmanuel, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel. We'll spend some time there in Isaiah seven. Look at that. But the other one that's also very popular and very well known is actually referenced in Luke two eleven, and where it says, "Unto you is born this day in the city of David." a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The idea of a son coming was so clearly referenced in Isaiah chapter 9 that we often incorporate these words into our hymns and our celebrations. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so both these references to that we bring up at this time of year as we begin to celebrate Christmas, we begin to consider what it means that Jesus Christ was born, find their home in the same passage in Isaiah in chapters 7 and 9. And so both Luke and Matthew are pointing back to this passage. And so it might be a good idea for us to go back there in the narrative and explore what it, what's happening in Isaiah 7 and through chapter 9, really. So I've given you some notes so you can remember some of these things. But I want to tell you just very quickly what was the context of what was happening in Isaiah chapter 7. Well, Isaiah had been given a ministry to the southern kingdom of Judah, 
and he was to preach God's word. And God was right up front with him saying, you know, people are mostly going to ignore you is a paraphrase of what God told him. And in uh, the, the time of the passages that we're interested in, it was the time of King Ahaz of Judah, a wicked king. He reigned over Judah from about 735 to 715. Now, Israel had split in about 930 BC into the northern kingdom, which is usually called Israel or Ephraim, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so at that time of King Ahaz of Judah, Pekah was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Rezin was the king of Syria, another neighbor to the north. They were threatening against Judah, the southern kingdom where Ahaz and Isaiah were for not joining them in resisting the Assyrian Empire, who was uh, soon to invade uh, Syria and Israel and Judah. Now, Assyria eventually conquered Israel and Syria, scattering, scattering their inhabitants all over the world and settling in their place many foreigners. That gave rise to the Samaritans, uh, an issue that we see they're still having trouble with hundreds of years later in uh, Israel when Jesus comes. Assyria also attacked Judah and they destroyed virtually everything in Judah except the capital of Judah, which was Jerusalem. So at the moment that Isaiah 7 comes, Israel and Syria are getting ready to attack Jerusalem. And God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz to encourage him. Listen to what uh, God's message for King Ahaz is. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. See why I gave you some background? <laughs> Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jacob, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, that is at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So the message to Ahaz was very clear. Uh, Syrian Israel, that is also called Ephraim, they will not destroy Judah and Jerusalem at this time, but they themselves will be destroyed. God wants to make sure Ahaz believes this message. So then the Lord is going to offer to him a sign. Go back to the scripture and see what happens next. 
In verse 10, it says again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria is coming. (laughs) So the message is, you know, hey, ask for a sign Ahaz and, and whatever you want, anything you want, I will show you a sign that this is true. And Ahaz acting pious declines because indeed the scripture does say you shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. You should take his word for it. Uh, We see places in scripture where people doubt the Lord and and he gets very angry with them. But we also see places in scripture where people ask for a sign and God honors it. This is one of those times because the Lord told him to ask for a sign. And so I tell you, don't test the Lord. Don't ask the Lord for a sign. But if he tells you to ask for a sign, then you ask for a sign. And this was one of those times. He says, hey, has ask, ask for a sign. He doesn't. And so the Lord says, okay, then fine. I'm going to give you one. And he gives this in Isaiah 7, 14, this interesting prophecy here that we quote at this time of year to be speaking of the birth of Jesus. It says, Uh, The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And there we saw in Matthew that Matthew says, this is about Jesus. This is about his birth. And so the first thing I want to point out is, and I'm going to point out three things here, that this passage shows us that Emmanuel brings us the hope of salvation, but also the warning of judgment. And thirdly, what the Lord does here in giving this is he gives us the absolute certainty of both. So in this passage of Isaiah, Emmanuel is speaking indeed of the hope of salvation, which is how we usually associate this, but he's also speaking of the warning of judgment and he's, and he's giving absolute certainty of both of these things. See, the sign was designed to encourage belief in the Lord's message that they weren't going to fall to Israel and Syria. And by using this name, Emmanuel, he's calling attention to his promises to Israel because Emmanuel is a Hebrew word that literally means God with us. And so remember the promises that God made to Abraham to always be with him, to to the nation of Israel as they became a nation and he reaffirmed the covenant with them to never leave them or forsake them. It is the most basic encouragement of the people of God, Old and New Testament, that he would be with them. But what does that mean? 
Well, in the context that we looked at in Isaiah, most plainly, this means that he's on their side. See, this is what God encouraged them with as they conquered the promised land. He said, I will be with you. And in the many battles since then, whether it was the time of judges or whether it was during the time of the kings, the encouragement of God is, I will be with you. And what it meant is, I'm on your side. I'm fighting for you. And this is very important to understand in the context here is that this is saying that the Lord is on his side, on Ahaz's side. More generally, it is the very privilege of salvation to have fellowship with God, to experience him, and to know that he will fight your battles, that he will bless your efforts to be obedient to him. And with him on your side, who can stand against you? It should call to mind one of the pinnacle passages of Scripture in Romans chapter 8 when it, it essentially says, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who, who could dare separate us from his love? Well, there's nothing on earth, no, nothing in creation could do so because the Lord is on your side. But the idea of the Lord being with us also means that we're in the privileged position of being his people. He told the people of Israel, I will be your God, you will be my people. And if God is with you in this way, then it implies fellowship. He gave them a tabernacle to be at the center of their worship, which later became the temple that everyone would come to and gather to and come to the festivals and, and see what was going on there and be able to offer to God and have fellowship with God and with one another. But more interestingly, in the, in the chapter right before this in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is given a glimpse of what is the equivalent of the temple scene, the holy place of the temple, in heaven. He sees the Lord, and he sees a scene in heaven of the uh, angels there worshiping him. And when he sees the Lord, he says this. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, in the scriptures, there's this interesting contrast. On the one hand, Israel was called to be the people of God, and indeed so are we in the New Testament in Christ. We're called to be the people of God, and yet we have sin. And we know that God is perfectly just and perfectly holy. And whenever God shows up in the Bible, people freak out. In fact, very often the first thing the Lord has to say is, do not be afraid. Because of this, we have sin. God does not. And interestingly, in Isaiah 6, when this happens, one of the seraphim flew to him and had in his hand a burning coal that he took from the altar in heaven. In other words, a sacrifice had been given and was being burned there on the altar. And one of those burning coals was brought to Isaiah, put to his lips, and he was pronounced clean. And then he was okay to be in the presence of God. That calmed his fear. Why? Because he understood his sin had been atoned for. Fear of the presence of God is normal, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we understand that he is holy and he must judge sin. 
So the term God with us, Emmanuel, not only carries with it the idea of encouragement that God is with us in a helpful way, that God is with us as an encouragement, but also a warning of judgment. Let me show you what I mean. If you look in chapter 7, verse 15 that we just read, um, it says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about this Emmanuel that is a theoretical child born at that moment. And he is saying, in essence, by the time the child is 12, Okay, that's what it means that when he is old enough to refuse the evil and choose the good. You may have heard of a child's bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah when they're 12 years old. They're considered kind of an adult then. That is when they're old enough to know to choose evil and good according to the Jewish tradition and, and the way that they express this uh, as the people of God. And so by the time he is 12 years old, he will be eating curds and honey. And some of you are saying, oh, that sounds good. You know, little curds and honey, that, that would be a nice thing to eat. And, you know, uh, th th those are decent foods or healthy foods. Uh, but this is actually a statement of judgment here because uh, what, ha what it means is that there's no crops. See, when you have curds, those are made from curdled, curdled milk which they knew about way back then, almost 3,000 years ago. They, they knew how to make cheese curds. They knew how to make curdled milk. Um, and they also have honey, but you notice there's no mention of bread. In other words, you have enough livestock that you're not drinking all the milk. You can even make curds. And then honey comes from wild bees and an abundance of flowering plants. But there's no bread. There's no grain for bread. There's no mention of fruit here from fruit trees. There's no mention of oil from olive oil, which is also needed to make bread. Why? Because invaders have trampled and burned the crops. As invaders went through a land, not only would they just physically just destroy crops by marching through them and things, uh, they would also sometimes set fire to them to discourage the inhabitants to to kind of starve them out, especially if they were going to lay siege to a walled city like Jerusalem. And so this young man in 12 years, what the Lord is saying here is 12 years from now, you will be living under scarcity as the result of having been conquered, living on curds and honey when you can find it. What he is saying here is that you are facing the certainty of the judgment of God. Now you can see immediately how this is a, a bittersweet passage then, because on the one hand, he's encouraging Ahaz. He sends his prophet Isaiah to him and says, tell him that this isn't going to end badly, that they're not going to not only not destroy Jerusalem, but they're going to be destroyed by Assyria. And so you're thinking, oh, this is a good passage. This is a good news for Isaiah. And Isaiah's thinking, oh, finally, I get to deliver some good news. But then Ahaz refuses the sign. And that's when the Lord says, let me tell you something. <laughs> Here's a sign I'm going to give you. <laughs> a child born now, by the time he's 12, he'll be eating curds and honey. In other words, you'll have been attacked. Things will be scarce. Things will not be pleasant in your land. The next chapter, chapter 8, 
it gives more details about this judgment, but also an encouragement to have faith, to wait upon the Lord. And the encouragement climaxes in chapter 9, turning once again to hope, and that great joy will come as a child is born. Look what it says here in chapter 9. It says, and these are familiar passages to you, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, as we read it earlier. So a bittersweet passage that's saying the hope of salvation is that Israel and Syria will not defeat Jerusalem today. But there's a warning of judgment that God is bringing Assyria upon Judah as well. Not to be utterly destroyed, but severely oppressed. And now you have a sense of the ebb and flow of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah kind of transitions back and forth. You know, here's tremendous judgment, and then here's the hope of a coming Messiah, and here's the what's going to happen to you, but here's what's going to happen to your enemies, and here's the restoration that you're going to experience under this one that is to come, this servant of mine that is going to come. And so there's this ebb and flow, hope for salvation, warning of judgment, back and forth. And both of them in this passage are Emmanuel. Let me take you back to the scriptures momentarily and let me show you something very interesting here. You'll notice that when I read through the passage before, I highlighted Emmanuel back there in chapter 7. But here it is again in chapter 8. And in here in chapter 8, God says this Assyrian invasion is like a flood that's coming. And very often in the Old Testament, warfare or invading armies are seen like a flood because indeed they destroy everything. If you've ever seen a land after a flood has come through, that's what you would expect after an invading army comes through. And he says, it will sweep into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land. O Emmanuel. And so it shows up here again in the context of great judgment. Oh, God is with you (laughs) when this invading army comes and, and covers you right up to the neck. And the picture there is that virtually Assyrians destroyed virtually everything except the city of Jerusalem, the capital. So everything else was laid waste. Hence, what did they have left to eat in Jerusalem? Curds and honey. And so this judgment comes with Emmanuel. That's God with them then. They would look out at the destroyed countryside and say, what happened here? And they'd say, Emmanuel, God visited us. He visited us in judgment. But we always like to celebrate the Emmanuel that visits us with great hope. You know, peace, goodwill toward men, all that kind of thing that we sing about. That's the Emmanuel we want, right? Well, we can't have one or the other. Comes as a package deal. It's also implied in verse 10 here in the same thing. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. It's implied there too. And he's telling them, do what you want. Make whatever kinds of plan you want. Speak a word, it's not going to stand. Why? Because God is with us. Wow. Emmanuel, hope and judgment. And so this is not only the hope of salvation, it's the warning of judgment that Emmanuel 
And that's the ministry of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. That his first coming, he comes grace and truth. Grace incarnate is the Lord Jesus Christ, a a sacrifice bringing the hope of salvation to all who believe. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But his second coming, read the book of Revelation. And it talks about, oddly enough, the wrath of the Lamb, which seems like kind of an oxymoron. You know, if you've ever seen a lamb, held a ram or a lamb, you can't think about the wrath of the Lamb. But nevertheless, it's what the book of Revelation talks about. The wrath of the Lamb, the judgment of God on whom? On all who despised his first coming. He came with great peace and great grace and offered himself. And he comes the second time to bring judgment upon those who wouldn't have him. So when we sing or we even cry from our hearts, O Emmanuel, Indeed, we are calling for peace and for salvation and for help. But we are also calling for judgment. Do you pray for peace? Really? I mean, do you really pray for peace? Because here's where the rubber meets the road with this passage is how do we apply this? How does this help us to pray? How does this help us come to grips with the world we live in? And let me ask you, do you pray for peace? Do you seriously pray for peace? Because I want you to think about it for a moment. I want you to use the gray cells God gave you and think of this. How can there be peace in this world? There's only one of two ways that there can ever be complete peace on earth. Way number one is this. Everyone on earth agrees with God about how things ought to be. That's one way to have total peace on earth. The other way to have peace on earth is God gets rid of everyone who refuses to see things his way. You know what? Right now he's doing both. He is given a sign in this world, and it is the sign of Emmanuel. He gave Ahaz the sign of Emmanuel. He told him what was going to happen, and he wanted Ahaz to have absolute certainty of the thing. So he tells Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Ahaz didn't. So God said the sign was Emmanuel, that there would be one born of a virgin. And that is how the Christ came into the world. Now, it kind of brings us a question, kind of brings us, you know, was there any sign for Ahaz? Was God's sign seen by Ahaz? Did he get this, in other words? Well, if this speaks of Christ... How is that helpful to Ahaz? Christ came some 700 years later. But prophecy in the Bible very often has multiple fulfillments. In other words, there would be a near fulfillment that made sense to the people at the time who got the prophecy, but then there would be a far fulfillment, which was usually involving Jesus Christ or his church. And we see that very common in Scripture. And so some people say, well, there must have been something there with Ahaz. There must have been someone in his household gave birth at that time to a child, and they named him Emmanuel. Maybe not knowing about the prophecy happened to name Emmanuel, and that would make Ahaz go, ah, there it is. That's what the Lord was talking about. That's not known whether that happened. and certainly not accounted in the Scripture. Some say that it's Isaiah 
that has a child that speaks of this. In Isaiah 8, 3, it mentions that Isaiah had another son born. And that some people say, well, that's the sign right there because it follows right after chapter 7. But the scriptures don't tell us whether his wife was a virgin, whether this was a miraculous birth, or even that she was a young lady. See, Isaiah already had other children at this point. You saw the one mention, take him with you to go encourage Ahaz. So some say, well, maybe that was his second wife and she was a virgin and they had this child and that was Emmanuel. Yeah, but they didn't name him Emmanuel. I think if Isaiah had taken it that way, he would have named him Emmanuel because God told him to name his other sons. But interestingly, this son he has, God tells him to take another name. So when Isaiah saw a son, did Isaiah think about Emmanuel? Well, of course he did. He gets this wild prophecy right around the time that he has another child. And he has to think, you know, this is a child that was born. And sure enough, by the time he was 12, we were in a situation where we were eating curds and wild honey. As the child grew up, would Isaiah always remember these things? Well, absolutely. In fact, he wrote it down. And we have it in the book of Isaiah. But I don't think, honestly, that there was any fulfillment given to Ahaz. I don't think there was anything in Ahaz's life that made Ahaz go, wow, God was really serious about that. God really did what he said he was going to do. Wow, what a great and awesome God, because Ahaz never had that kind of a moment in his life. He was a wicked king beginning to end. Now, I think God withheld a sign from Ahaz. He didn't really deserve one. I think he left him hanging with this puzzle. And Ahaz, because of his lack of faith, therefore, was left in uncertainty. But the prophecy of Emmanuel gives all the faithful today absolute certainty. And here's what I want you to think about. And this is the, the third point that I have here. Not only do we have the hope of salvation wrapped up in the name Emmanuel and the warning of judgment, but this prophecy gives us absolute certainty of these things. How is that? Well, it shows us that God is both willing and able to push forth his plans regardless of the circumstances. Jesus came, and that cannot be argued by anyone. We have absolute certainty that this is fulfilled in him and that gives us absolute certainty that God will accomplish all that he's promised. Because here's the thing, after the time of Isaiah and Ahaz, and it's prophesied in Isaiah, right there in the passage we talked about, God says, I am going to cut off Judah from the earth. It's going to be nothing but a stump. Because very often the Bible represents uh, empires or nations as trees. He says, I'm going to cut them off. But then he calls Jesus the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being the father of David, of course, the promised king of the tribe of Judah. So this is powerfully important for us to understand that it looked like they were done. After Judah got into exile, Satan probably did a happy dance thinking that he had successfully stopped God 
bringing the head crusher, that is the one who would defeat him eventually through the nation Israel, but he didn't. God found a way around. He brought them back into the land and he gathered them from around the world and settled them back in that place and found two descendants of David, Mary and Joseph, and brought forth his Messiah exactly as he said he would. Through what would be from a worldly perspective, impossible odds. So I want to point out to you this twofold meaning of Emmanuel, God with us in Isaiah, salvation and judgment. He brings forth Christ. He's unstoppable. And by pointing to this future fulfillment in Christ, he's saying, look, no pika, no resin, no Assyria, not even you, faithless Ahaz, none of those things are going to stop me from pushing forth my plans to bring God with us, to bring salvation and be Emmanuel with a people not yet known. That's what God is essentially saying here. Salvation and judgment. No armies could stop it. No foolishness of his own people could forfeit it. God was bringing forth his promised Messiah, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent, and nothing was going to stop it. And it speaks the same thing to us today. And here's what I want you to get from this. This says the same thing to us today. As certainly as God brought Jesus the first time, he is coming back a second time. Look at the world today. And know this to be true. We have our own share of concerns. We look around the world and we see like an impending attack from the enemy that Ahaz was faced with. He could probably see the armies from the wall of Jerusalem. We look out at the world and we see terror and we see upset and we see violence. and We see hopelessness. But those of us with faith in Jesus Christ, we have great certainty. So think about the context you find yourself in, the context of 2020 maybe. I don't know when or or where you're watching this, but in our nation now in the year 2020, we can be assured that no election, that no virus, that no protests, that no legislation or action of men, that no corruption, that no rebellion, that no exertion of the will of man, that no virus, that no deception, or no discovery, or any hatred, or any persecution, or any famine, or any technological advance, or any kind of learning, or brilliance, or foolishness of men, no neglect of the church, no lack of faith among his people, no amount of backsliding among those who would call themselves Christians, no apostasy or false doctrine. None of these things will stop Emmanuel, for he is God with us. He has come once despite all these kinds of things, and he will come again. And this is really practical because here's how I take this passage. I see this absolute certainty of God fulfilling his plans and great hope of salvation and great certainty of judgment. And I say, you know what I'm going to do? 
I'm going to celebrate Christmas with my family. I'm going to laugh. And yeah, Governor Bashir, I'm going to hug. I'm going to celebrate what Christ has done. We will decorate the house. We will exchange gifts. We will stay up late and play cards. We will watch our favorite Christmas stories. We will worship together. We'll pass the taters and everything else that goes with it. Because God is with us. He came and he is here and he is coming And if none of those things are available to us to do, I will worship him in my heart. Because why? Because I know he is with me. Have you ever just asked God to be with you? He knows about your sin. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, you repent of your sins, you believe on him you agree with God about your sins you turn from them in faith to Jesus Christ your sins will be forgiven paid for by the blood of Christ no not just forgotten about not just written off no but paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ who came born of a woman born into this world suffered precisely as we do in every way, and even worse. His rejection was worse than any human being will ever experience. And he did it for the purpose of offering you eternal life. He was born to die so that we could have God with us. Won't you trust him? Won't you pray with me? O come, O come, Emmanuel. Father God, when we say those words, we're saying a mouthful. Yes, we're asking for peace and hope and all those things, but we know those only be accomplished in your plan through great divine judgment. Lord, I pray that you will give us faith to understand these things. You will give us encouragement to worship you in any difficulty. Lord, this day as you as you bring this message to people who are in difficult circumstances, I pray that you will spark faith in them, that they may be able to worship you even in the midst of those difficulties, even despite the difficulties. Lord, I pray you would increase their faith. Lord, I pray that we will worship you in spirit and in truth in a way that's fitting to you. And Lord, you never commanded us to go and celebrate Christmas, but you did command us to obey you. You did command us to love you above all other things. And you did command us to love others. And we know that that means primarily by bringing them the truth, the gospel. So increase our faith to tell people the reason for the hope that's in our hearts and the meaning of Emmanuel, that it's not just some abstract feeling of happiness, but it is a, a true and, and tangible event that continues to this day with the indwelling of your spirit and will continue with the return of Christ. So increase our faith 
that we can come to you and indeed be able to say, you are Emmanuel, God with us. Well, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. And I encourage you to contact us if you have any questions. You can find us at whitesrun.org where you can find our statement of faith and you can find many more sermons that uh, might be helpful to you. You can also email us at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com. That is where we will personally answer every email that comes in and be as helpful as we can with you. We can even help you find a local church wherever you are. And there is a, a many networks of Christians that are connected. We can help get you to connected to someone that is faithful to bring forth the word of God to you. May God bless you and may you be deeply and richly blessed this holiday season. In Jesus' name, amen.